section four of a history of our own times volume four by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter forty nine the troubles in jamaica part two on october thirteenth eighteen sixty five the governor proclaimed the whole of the county of surrey with the exception of the city of kingston under martial law jamaica is divided into three counties surrey covering the eastern and southern portion including the region of the blue mountains the towns of port antonio and morant bay and the considerable city of kingston with its population of some thirty thousand middlesex comprehends the central part of the island and contains spanish town then the seat of government the western part of the island is the county of cornwall at this time jamaica was ruled by the governor and council and the house of assembly the council was composed of twelve persons nominated like the governor by the crown and the house of assembly consisted of forty-five members elected by the freeholders of each parish the council had the place of an upper house the assembly was the representative chamber among the members of the assembly was a colored man of some education and property george william gordon gordon was a baptist by religion and had in him a good deal of the fanatical earnestness of the field preacher he was a vehement agitator and a devoted advocate of what he considered to be the rights of the negroes he appears to have had a certain amount of eloquence partly of the conventicle and partly of the stump he was just the sort of man to make himself a nuisance to white colonists and officials who wanted to have everything their own way indeed he belonged to that order of men who are almost sure to be always found in opposition to officialism of any kind such a man may do mischief sometimes but it is certain that out of his very restlessness and troublesomeness he often does good no really sensible politician would like to see a legislative assembly of any kind without some men of the type of gordon representing the check of perpetual opposition on the other hand gordon was exactly the sort of person in the treatment of whom a wise authority would be particularly cautious in order not to allow its own prejudices to operate to his injury and the injury of political justice together gordon was in constant disputes with the authorities and with governor eyre himself he had been a magistrate but was dismissed from the magistracy in consequence of the alleged violence of his language in making accusations against another justice he had taken some part in getting up meetings of the coloured population he had made many appeals to the colonial office in london against this or that act on the part of the governor or the council or both he had been appointed churchwarden but was declared disqualified for the office in consequence of his having become a native baptist and he had brought an action to recover what he held to be his rights he had come to hold the position of champion of the rights and claims of the black man against the white he was a sort of constitutional opposition in himself the governor seems to have at once adopted the conclusion urged on him by others that gordon was at the bottom of the insurrectionary movement in the historical sense he may no doubt be regarded as in some measure the cause of the disturbance whether insurrectionary or not which broke out a man who tells people they are wronged 
is to that extent the cause of any disturbance which may come of an attempt to get their wrongs righted a great many persons declared that fox was the author of the irish rebellion of seventeen ninety eight because he had helped to show that the irish people had wrongs in this sense every man who agitates for reform anywhere is responsible should some rebellious movement take place and the only good citizen is he who approves of all that is done by authority and never uplifts the voice of opposition to anything gordon was a very energetic agitator and he probably had some sense of self-importance in his agitation but we entirely agree with chief justice coburn in believing that so far from there being any evidence to prove that mr gordon intended this insurrection and rebellion the evidence as well as the probability of the case appears to be exactly the other way there does not seem to have been one particle of evidence to connect gordon with a rebellious movement more than there would have been to condemn mr bright as a promoter of rebellion if the working men of the reform period soon to be mentioned in this history had been drawn into some fatal conflict with the police in each case it might have been said that only for the agitator who denounced the supposed grievance all would have been quiet and in neither case was there anything more to be said which could connect the agitator with the disturbance mr eyre and his advisers however had made up their minds that gordon was the leader of a rebellious conspiracy they took a course with regard to him which could hardly be excused if he were the self-confessed leader of as formidable a conspiracy as ever endangered the safety of a state we have mentioned the fact that in proclaiming the county of surrey under martial law mr eyre had specially accepted the city of kingston mr gordon lived near kingston and had a place of business in the city and he seems to have been there attending to his business as usual during the days while the disturbance was going on the governor ordered a warrant to be issued for gordon's arrest when this fact became known to gordon he went to the house of the general in command of the forces at kingston and gave himself up the governor had him put at once on board a war steamer and conveyed to morant bay having given himself up in a place where martial law did not exist where the ordinary courts were open and where therefore he would have been tried with all the forms and safeguards of the civil law he was purposely carried away to a place which had been put under martial law here an extraordinary sort of court-martial was sitting it was composed of two young navy lieutenants and an ensign in one of her majesty's west india regiments gordon was hurried before this grotesque tribunal charged with high treason found guilty and sentenced to death the sentence was approved by the officer in command of the troops sent to morant bay it was then submitted to the governor and approved by him also it was carried into effect without much delay the day following gordon's conviction was sunday and it was not thought seemly to hang a man on the sabbath he was allowed therefore to live over that day on the morning of monday october twenty third gordon was hanged he bore his fate with great heroism and wrote just before his death a letter to his wife which is full of pathos in its simple and dignified manliness 
he died protesting his innocence of any share in disloyal conspiracy or insurrectionary purpose the whole of the proceedings connected with the trial of gordon was absolutely illegal they were illegal from first to last it is almost impossible to conceive of any transaction more entirely unlawful every step in it was a separate outrage of law but for its tragic end the whole affair would seem to belong to the domain of burlesque rather than to that of sober history the act which conveyed mr gordon from the protection of civil law to the authority of a drumhead court-martial was grossly illegal the tribunal was constituted in curious defiance of law and precedent it is contrary to all authority to form a court-martial by mixing together the officers of the two different services it was an unauthorized tribunal however even if considered as only a military court-martial or only a naval court-martial whatever way we take it it was irregular and illegal it would have been so had all its members been soldiers or had all been sailors care seems to have been taken so as to constitute it that it might in any case be illegal the prisoner thus brought by unlawful means before an illegal tribunal was tried upon testimony taken in ludicrous opposition to all the rules of evidence chief justice coburn says after the most careful perusal of the evidence which was adduced against him i come irresistibly to the conclusion that if the man had been tried upon that evidence and here the chief justice checked himself and said i must correct myself he could not have been tried upon that evidence i was going too far a great deal too far in assuming that he could he could not have been tried upon that evidence no competent judge acquainted with the duties of his office could have received that evidence three-fourths i had almost said nine-tenths of the evidence upon which that man was convicted and sentenced to death was evidence which according to no known rules not only of ordinary law but of military law according to no rules of right or justice could possibly have been admitted and it never would have been admitted if a competent judge had presided or if there had been the advantage of a military officer of any experience in the practice of courts-martial such as the evidence was however compounded of scraps of the paltriest hearsay and of things said when the prisoner was not present of depositions made apparently to supplement evidence given before and not thought strong enough strengthened probably in the hope of thus purchasing the safety of the witnesses and on which the witnesses were never cross-examined such as the evidence was supposing it admissible supposing it trustworthy supposing it true beyond all possibility of question yet the chief justice was convinced that it testified rather to the innocence than to the guilt of the prisoner by such a court on such evidence gordon was put to death meanwhile the carnival of repression was going on the insurrection or whatever the movement was which broke out on october eleventh was over long before it never offered the slightest resistance to the soldiers it never showed itself to them an armed insurgent was never seen by them nevertheless for weeks after the hangings the floggings 
the burnings of houses was kept up. Men were hanged, women were flogged merely suspect of being suspect. Many were flogged or hanged for no particular reason but that they happened to come in the way of men who were in the humor of flogging and hanging. Women, to be sure, they were only colored women, were stripped and scourged by the saviors of society, with all the delight which a savage village population of the Middle Ages might have felt in torturing witches. The report of the royal commissioners stated that 439 persons were put to death, and that over 600, including many women, were flogged, some under circumstances of revolting cruelty. Cats made of piano wire were in some instances used for the better effect of flagellation. Some of the scourges were shown to the commissioners, who observed that it is painful to think that any man should have used such an instrument for the torture of his fellow creatures. The commissioners summed up their report by declaring that the punishments inflicted were excessive, that the punishment of death was unnecessarily frequent, that the floggings were reckless and in some case positively barbarous, that the burning of one thousand houses was wanton and cruel. The fury at last spent itself, lasata nectum satiata. When the story reached England in clear and trustworthy form, two antagonistic parties were instantly formed. The extreme on the one side glorified Governor Eyre, and held that by his prompt action he had saved the white population of Jamaica from all the horrors of triumphant Negro insurrection. The extreme on the other side denounced him as a mere fiend. The majority on both sides were more reasonable, but the difference between them was only less wide. An association called the Jamaica Committee was formed for the avowed purpose of seeing that justice was done. It comprised some of the most illustrious Englishmen. Men became members of that committee who had never taken part in public agitation of any kind before. Another association was founded on the opposite side for the purpose of sustaining Governor Eyre, and it must be owned that it too had great names. Mr. Mill may be said to have led the one side, and Mr. Carlyle the other. The natural bent of each man's genius and temper turned him to the side of the Jamaica Negroes, or of the Jamaica Governor. Mr. Tennyson, Mr. Kingsley, Mr. Ruskin followed Mr. Carlyle. We know now that Mr. Dickens was of the same way of thinking. Mr. Herbert Spencer, Professor Huxley, Mr. Goldwin Smith were in agreement with Mr. Mill. We have purposely omitted the names of politicians whom any reader can range without difficulty according to his knowledge of their career and ways of thinking. No one needs to be told that Mr. Bright took the side of the oppressed and Mr. Disraeli that of authority. The case on either side may be briefly stated. We put out of consideration altogether the position taken up by only too many of those who proclaim themselves advocates of Mr. Eyre and who volunteered a line of defense on his behalf for which he would probably have given them little thanks. That was what some one at the time in blunt expressive words described as the damn nigger principle, the principle that any sort of treatment is good enough for Negroes, and generally speaking serves them right. This kind of argument was very effective among considerable classes of persons, but it was not allowed to make its appearance much in public debate. 
in the house of commons it never at all events got higher than the smoking-room the reporters in the gallery were not allowed any opportunity of recording it perhaps on the other side we may fairly put out of our consideration the view of those who having from the most benevolent motives identified themselves all their lives long with the cause of oppressed negroes fell instinctively and at once into the ranks of any movement professing to defend a negro population the more reasonable of those who supported mr eyre did not concern themselves to vindicate the legality or even the justice of all he had done lord carnarvon the new colonial secretary frankly admitted that in his opinion acts of cruelty and injustice had been done during and after the rebellion many were quite willing to admit that the trial of gordon had been irregular and that his hasty execution was to be deplored what they did contend was that at a terrible crisis mr eyre did the best he could that he was confronted with the fearful possibility of a negro insurrection where the whites were not one in twenty of the blacks and where a moment's success to the rebels might have put the life of every white man and the honor of every white woman at the mercy of furious mobs of savage negroes say what you will they urged he stamped out the rebellion he acted illegally because there was no time for being legal he sanctioned unmerciful deeds because he had to choose between mercy to murderous blacks and mercy to loyal and innocent whites you complain of the flogging of black women he was thinking of the honor and lives of white women he crushed the rebellion utterly he positively frightened it into submission he was dealing with savages he took the only steps which could have saved the loyal people he had in charge from an orgy of cruelty and licentiousness had he stayed his hand a moment all was lost many things were done which we deplore which we would not have done which he would not have done or sanctioned if there were time to balance claims and consider nicely individual rights but he saved the white population and put down the insurrection and we feel gratitude to him first of all End of section four.